0: Chapter One of The Best Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Best Man by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter One. Cyril Gordon had been seated at his desk but ten minutes and was deep in the morning's mail when there came an urgent message from his chief, summoning him to an immediate audience in the inner office. The chief had keen blue eyes and shaggy eyebrows. He never wasted words, yet those words, when spoken, had more weight than those of most other men in Washington. There was the briefest of good-morning gleams in his nod and glance, but he only said, "'Gordon,' can you take the pennsylvania train for new york that leaves the station in thirty-two minutes the young man was used to abrupt questions from his chief but he caught his breath mentally surveying his day as it had been planned why sir i suppose i could if it is necessary he hesitated it is necessary said the chief curtly as if that settled the matter but half an hour ejaculated gordon in dismay I could hardly get to my rooms and back to the station. I don't see how— Isn't there a train a little later? Later train won't do. Call up your man on the phone. Tell him to pack your bag and meet you at the station in twenty minutes. You'll need evening clothes. Can you depend on your man to get your things quickly, without fail? There was that in the tone of the chief that caused Gordon to make no further demur. Sure he responded with his usual business-like tone, as he strode to the phone. His days was passing off. "'Evening clothes?' he questioned curiously, as if he might not have heard right. "'Yes, evening clothes,' was the curt answer. "'And everything you'll need for daytime, for a respectable gentleman of leisure, a tourist, you understand.' Gordon perceived that he was being given a mission of trust and importance, not unmixed with mystery, perhaps. He was new in the secret service— and it had been his ambition to rise in his chief's good graces he rang the telephone bell furiously and called up the number of his own apartments giving his man orders in a breezy decisive tone that caused a look of satisfaction to settle about the fine wrinkles of the chief's eyes gordon's watch was out and he was telling his man on just what car he must leave the apartments for the station the chief noted it was two cars ahead of what would have been necessary His grey head gave an almost imperceptible nod of commendation, and his eyes showed that he was content with his selection of a man. "'Now, sir,' said Gordon as he hung up the receiver, "'I'm ready for orders.' "'Well, you are to go to New York, "'and take a cab for the Cosmopolis Hotel. "'Your room there is already secured by wire. "'Your name is John Burnham. "'The name of the hotel and the number of your room "'are on this memorandum. "'You will find awaiting you an invitation to dine this evening "'with a Mr. Holman, who knows of you as an expert in code-reading. "'Our men met him on the train an hour ago, "'and arranged that he should invite you. "'He didn't know whom they represented, of course. "'He has already tried to phone you at the hotel "'about coming to dinner to-night. "'He knows you are expected there before evening. "'Here is a letter of introduction to him from a man he knows. "'Our men got that also.' It is genuine, of course. Last night a message of national importance, written in cipher, was stolen from one of our men before it had been read. This is now in the hands of Holman, who is hoping to have you decipher it for him and a few guests, who will also be present at dinner. They wish to use it for their own purposes. Your commission is to get hold of the message and bring it to us as soon as possible. Another message of very different import, written upon the same kind of paper, IS IN THIS ENVELOPE, WITH A TRANSLATION FOR YOU TO USE, IN CASE YOU HAVE TO SUBSTITUTE A MESSAGE. YOU WILL HAVE TO USE YOUR OWN WITS AND JUDGMENT. THE MAIN THING IS, GET THE PAPER, AND GET BACK WITH IT, WITH AS LITTLE DELAY AS POSSIBLE. UNDOUBTEDLY YOUR LIFE WILL BE IN DANGER, SHOULD IT BE DISCOVERED THAT YOU HAVE MADE OFF WITH IT. SPARE NO CARE TO PROTECT YOURSELF, AND THE MESSAGE, AT ALL HAZARDS. REMEMBER I SAID, AND THE MESSAGE, YOUNG MAN. IT MEANS MUCH TO THE COUNTRY. In this envelope is money, all you will probably need. Telegraph or phone to this address if you are in trouble. Draw on us for more if necessary, also through the same address. Here is the code you can use, in case you find it necessary to telegraph. Your ticket is already bought. I have sent Clarkson to the station for it, and he will meet you at the train. You can give him instructions, in case you find you have forgotten anything. Take your mail with you and telegraph back orders to your stenographer. I think that is all. Oh, yes. Tonight, while you are at dinner, you will be called to the phone by one of our men. If you are in trouble, this may give you opportunity to get away, and put us wise. You will find a motor at the door now, waiting to take you to the station. If your man doesn't get there with your things, take the train anyway, and buy some more when you get to New York. Don't turn aside from your commission for anything. Don't let anything hinder you. Make it a matter of life and death. Good morning, and good luck. The chief held out a big hairy hand, that was surprisingly warm and soft, considering the hardness of his face and voice, and the young man grasped it, feeling as if he were suddenly being plunged into waves of an unknown depth, and he would fain hold on to this strong hand. He went out of the office quietly enough, and the keen old eyes watched him knowingly, understanding the beating of the heart under Gordon's well-fitting business coat, the mingled elation and dread over the commission. But there had been no hesitancy, no question of acceptance, when the nature of the commission was made known. The young man was game, he would do. Not even an eyelash had flickered at the hint of danger. The chief felt he would be faithful, even in the face, of possible death. Gordon's man came rushing into the station, just after he reached there himself. Clarkson was already there with the ticket. Gordon had time to scribble a message to Julia Bentley, whose perfumed scrawl he had read on the way down. Julia had bidden him to her presence that evening. He could not tell whether he was relieved or sorry to tell her he could not come. It began to look to him a good deal as if he would ask Julia Bentley to marry him some day, when she got tired of playing all the others off against him and he could make up his mind to surrender his freedom to any woman. He bought a paper and settled himself comfortably in the parlour-car, but his interest was not in the paper. His strange commission engaged all his thoughts. He took out the envelope containing instructions, and went over the matter, looking curiously at the cipher-message and its translation, which, however, told him nothing. It was the old chief's way to keep the business to himself, until such time as he chose to explain— Doubtless it was safer for both message and messenger that he did not know the full import of what he was undertaking. Gordon carefully noted down everything that his chief had told him, comparing it with the written instructions in the envelope, arranged in his mind just how he would proceed when he reached New York, tried to think out a good plan for recovering the stolen message but could not, and so decided to trust to the inspiration of the moment— Then it occurred to him to clear his overcoat pockets of any letters or other tell-tale articles and stow them in his suitcase. He might have to leave his overcoat behind him, so it would be well to have no clues for anyone to follow. Having arranged these matters and prepared a few letters with notes for his stenographer to be mailed back to her from Philadelphia, he re-read Julia Bentley's note. When every angular line of her tall script was imprinted on his memory, he tore the perfume note into tiny pieces and dropped them from the car window. The question was, did he or did he not want to ask Julia Bentley to become his wife? He had no doubt as to what her answer would be. Julia had made it pretty plain to him that she would rather have him than any of her other admirers, though she did like to keep them all attendant upon her. Well, that was her right so long as she was unmarried, he had no fault to find with her she was a fine girl and everybody liked her also she was of a good family and with a modest fortune in her own right everybody was taking it for granted that they liked each other it was time he was married and had a real home he supposed whatever that was that seemed to have so great a charm for all his friends to his eyes it had as yet taken on no alluring mirage effect He had never known a real home, more than his quiet bachelor apartments were to him now, where his man ordered everything as he was told, and the meals were sent up when wanted. He had money enough from his inheritance to make things more than comfortable, and he was deeply interested in the profession he had chosen. Still, if he was ever going to marry, it was high time, of course. But did he want Julia? He could not quite make it seem pleasant to think of her in his rooms when he came home at night tired. She would always be wanting to go to her endless theatre parties and receptions and dances, always be demanding his attention. She was bright and handsome and well-dressed, but he had never made love to her. He could not quite imagine himself doing so. How did men make love, anyway? Could one call it love when it was made love?' These questions followed one another idly through his brain as the landscape whirled past him. If he had stayed at home, he would have spent the evening with Julia, as she requested in her note, and there would probably have been a quiet half-hour after other callers had gone, when he would have stayed as he had been doing of late, and tried to find out whether he really cared for her or not. Suppose, for instance, they were married, and she sat beside him now, would any glad thrill fill his heart as he looked at her beautiful face and realized that she was his? He tried to look over toward the next chair and imagine that the tired, fat old lady with the double chin and the youthful purple hat was Julia, but that would not work. He whirled his chair about and tried it on an empty chair. That went better, but still no thrill of joy lifted him out of his sordid self. He could not help thinking about little trying details. The way Julia looked when she was vexed, Did one mind that in the woman one loved? The way she ordered her coachman about. Would she ever speak so to her husband? She had a charming smile, but her frown was, well, unbecoming, to say the least. He tried to keep up the fallacy of her presence. He bought a magazine that he knew she liked, and read a story to her in imagination. He could easily tell how her black eyes would snap at certain phrases she disliked he knew just what her comment would be upon the heroine's conduct it was an old disputed point between them he knew how she would criticize the hero and somehow he felt himself in the hero's place every time she did it the story had not been a success and he felt a weariness as he laid the magazine aside at the call for dinner from the dining-car before he had finished his luncheon he had begun to feel that though julia might think now that she would like to marry him THE TRUTH ABOUT IT WAS THAT SHE WOULD NOT ENJOY THE ACTUAL LIFE TOGETHER ANY BETTER THAN HE WOULD. WERE ALL MARRIAGES LIKE THAT? DID PEOPLE LOSE THE GLAMOUR, AND JUST SETTLE DOWN TO ENDURE EACH OTHER'S FAULTS, AND MAKE THE MOST OF EACH OTHER'S PLEASANT SIDE, AND NOT HAVE ANYTHING MORE? OR WAS HE GETTING CYNICAL? HAD HE LIVED ALONE TOO LONG, AS HIS FRIENDS SOMETIMES TOLD HIM, AND SO WAS LOSING THE ABILITY REALLY TO LOVE ANYBODY BUT HIMSELF? He knit his brows, and got up whistling to go out and see why the train had stopped so long in this little country settlement. It was just beyond Princeton, and they were not far now from New York. It would be most annoying to be delayed so near to his destination. He was anxious to get things in train for his evening of hard work. It was necessary to find out how the land lay, as soon as possible. It appeared that there was a wrecked freight ahead of them, and there would be a delay, No one knew just how long. It would depend on how soon the wrecking train arrived to help. Gordon walked nervously up and down the grass at the side of the track, looking anxiously each way for sign of the wrecking train. The thought of Julia did occur to him, but he put it impatiently away, for he knew just how poorly Julia would bear a delay on a journey even in his company. He had been with her once when the engine got off the track— on a short trip down to a Virginia house-party, and she was the most impatient creature alive, although it mattered not one whit to any of the rest of their party, whether they made merry on the train or at their friend's house. And yet, if Julia were anything at all to him, would not he like the thought of her companionship now? A great white dog hobbled up to him and fawned upon him as he turned to go back to the train, "'And he laid his hand kindly upon the animal's head "'and noted the wistful eyes upon his face. "'He was a noble dog, and Gordon stood for a moment fondling him. "'Then he turned impatiently and tramped back to his car again. "'But when he reached the steps, he found that the dog had followed him. "'Gordon frowned, half in annoyance, half in amusement, "'and sitting down on a log by the wayside, "'he took the dog's pink muzzle into his hands, "'caressing the white fur above it gently.' The dog whined happily, and Gordon meditated. How long would the train wait? Would he miss getting to New York in time for the dinner? Would he miss the chance to rise in his chief's good graces? The chief would expect him to get to New York some other way if the train were delayed. How long ought he to wait on possibilities? All at once he saw the conductor and trainmen coming back hurriedly. Evidently the train was about to start. With a final kindly stroke of the white head, He called a workman nearby, handed him half a dollar to hold the dog, and sprang on board. He had scarcely settled himself into his chair, however, before the dog came rushing up the aisle from the other end of the car, and precipitated himself muddily and noisily upon him. With haste and perturbation, Gordon hurried the dog to the door and tried to fling him off, but the poor creature pulled back and clung to the platform, yelping piteously, "'Just then the conductor came from the other car "'and looked at him curiously. "'No dogs allowed in these cars,' he said gruffly. "'Well, if you know how to enforce that rule, "'I wish you would,' said Gordon. "'I'm sure I don't know what to do with him.' "'Where has he been since you left Washington?' "'asked the grim conductor, with suspicion in his eyes. "'I certainly haven't had him secreted about me, "'a dog of that size,' remarked the young man dryly. "'Besides, he isn't my dog.' "'I never saw him before till he followed me at the station. "'I'm as anxious to be rid of him as he is to stay.' "'The conductor eyed the young man keenly, "'and then allowed a grim sense of humour "'to appear in one corner of his mouth. "'Got a chain or a rope for him?' he asked more sympathetically. "'Well, no,' remarked the unhappy attaché of the dog. "'Not having had an appointment with the dog, "'I didn't provide myself with a leash for him.' "'Take him to the baggage-car,' said the conductor briefly and slammed his way into the next car there seemed nothing else to be done but it was most annoying to be thus forced on the notice of his fellow-travellers when his commission required that he be as inconspicuous as possible at jersey city he hoped to escape and leave the dog to the tender mercies of the baggage man "'but that official was craftily waiting for him "'and handed the animal over to his unwilling master "'with a satisfaction ill proportioned "'to the fee he had received for caring for him. "'Then began a series of misfortunes. "'Disappointment and suspicion stalked beside him, "'and behind him a voice continually whispered "'his chief's last injunction, "'Don't let anything hinder you.' "'Frantically he tried first one place and then another, "'but all to no effect,' nobody apparently wanted to care for a stray white dog and his very haste aroused suspicion once he came near being arrested as a dog thief he could not get rid of that dog yet he must not let him follow him would he have to have the animal sent home to washington as the only solution of the problem then a queer fancy seized him that just in some such way had miss julia bentley been shadowing his days for nearly three years now and he had actually this very day been considering calmly whether he might not have to marry her, just because she was so persistent in her taking possession of him. Not that she was unladylike, of course. No, indeed. She was stately and beautiful, and had never offended. But she had always quietly, persistently taken it for granted that he would be her attendant whenever she chose, and she always chose whenever he was in the least inclined to enjoy any other woman's company.' he frowned at himself was there something weak about his character that a woman or a dog could so easily master him would any other employee in the office once trusted with his great commission have allowed it to be hindered by a dog gordon could not afford to waste any more time he must get rid of him at once the express office would not take a dog without a collar and chain unless he was crated and the delays and exasperating hindrances seemed to be interminable but at last following the advice of a kindly officer he took the dog to an institution in new york where he was told dogs were boarded and cared for and where he finally disposed of him having first paid ten dollars for the privilege as he settled back in a taxicab with his watch in his hand, he congratulated himself that he had still ample time to reach his hotel and get into evening dress before he must present himself for his work. Within three blocks of the hotel, the cab came to such a sudden standstill that Gordon was thrown to his knees. End of Chapter 1